Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy was the shield of our democratic republic and remains the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joining us from the Iberian Peninsula, about which more later. Elliot, how are you? Life is good. Uh, You know, Sherry, tapas, uh, and then uh, starting this weekend, uh, pastej de nata, which those of you who've been to Lisbon or other parts of uh, Portugal will have heard of, but more of that uh, later, as you say. I've been doing some reading to get ready for that, and uh, I thought we can uh, we can cheer ourselves up at the end of this session by talking about Portuguese dictators. Yeah, I had a, a, a couple of years ago, um, we had a lovely uh, wine tasting week in Portugal, ended up in a Porto tasting port. And it was really, uh, it was really lovely. A lot of, a lot of wine was consumed. A lot of cigars got smoked. You have just written something in the Atlantic on U.S.-Iran policy, with which I am in in strong agreement. Can you kind of just lay out for the listeners uh, your argument about U.S.-Iran policy? Sure. So it, it makes an argument, actually, that you and Ray Take have made repeatedly over the last five years. It's triggered, of course, by this uh, recent attack on an American base in uh, Jordan, which, alas, killed three American servicemen, wounded 25 others. And uh, what it does is it steps back and looks at this in the context of U.S.-Iranian relations, uh, which have been, on the part of the Islamic Republic, uh, violent really since the inception. And basically what the article says is, look, um, American policy has failed because we've tried to segment the Iranian problem, or we we always have segmented it. So either we think we're dealing with the hostage issue, or we think we're dealing with the freedom of the seas issue, or we think we're dealing with a nuclear issue, or you know, we think we're dealing with an Iraq issue. But the, the fundamental fact underneath it all is we're dealing with an Islamic Republic of Iran issue. And I make the case that the regime is implacably, irrevocably hostile to the United States and malevolent. And that um, our what has been our policy really across multiple administrations, I don't think we can just blame the Biden administration for that, for this of you know tit for tat responses or one off kinds of things like killing Qasem Soleimani has to be replaced by a comprehensive approach which first will have to be violent, uh, but which really aims at undermining uh, the Iranian regime and assisting the Iranian people who by and large seem to oppose it, it to overthrow it, and that you know this is a has to be a fundamental reorientation. Uh, of American policy. It, it ends, of course, with a quote from Shakespeare um, in which uh, Shakespeare's Henry IV says, are these then necessities? Let us meet them like necessities. 
and and I say that because I you know I fully sympathize with the administration's desire not to get pulled into a Middle East war. I understand its aversion to the use of force on a large scale, which is, of course, always unpredictable. But I think the alternative is much worse. And I and I I'll, finally I'll just say that I think the way that we've handled this has made the problem progressively worse. You know, we now face an Iran that controls the regimes in Yemen and in Lebanon uh, and has an enormous amount of influence in Iraq and Syria, which is getting more belligerent, not less, which is more dangerous, not less, which is actually helping to unsettle not only the Middle East, but Central Europe uh, through its support of, of Russia. Um, and the time to deal with this problem is now. Yeah, one of the points you make, which I, you know I agree with, of course, is the fact that uh, a lot of the dysfunction of our Iran policy, you know, uh, goes back across several administrations, including to some degree the Bush administration in which we served. And I think one of the reasons for that, and I'd love to hear your view of this, is that Americans really tend to underplay the role of ideology in uh, international affairs and religion. So the fact that we're dealing with a regime that is ideologically committed, implacably committed to the destruction of the United States and Israel as a fundamental tenet of its very being, a kind of constitutive element of its identity, uh, is something that is just so beyond the, you know, experiential kind of remit of of most policymakers that they kind of gravitate towards, it, well, let's deal with this one problem at a time as if it were a normal country. So we can deal with the arms control element. We can deal with, you know, if it's a freedom of navigation issue, we could deal with one element at a time. And, you know, sometimes this is justified on the grounds that, well, even at the height of the Cold War, we, um, you know, did arms control business with the, you know, Soviet Union which I think kind of ignores the fact that, first of all, the Soviet Union was a peer competitor that had a nuclear you know, arsenal that could destroy the United States, but also that it had gone through some ideological evolution of its own and actually, uh, you know, w- while always willing to pursue unilateral advantage against the United States, had fundamentally accepted the notion of peaceful coexistence. Yeah, you know, it, it is also a lack of imagination. I, I completely agree with that. You know, I think what you're dealing with here is it's a toxic combination of three things. First, there's the core ideology, which is a a distinctive brand of Shia Islam, to be sure. But what it's also about is a kind of revolutionary ardor. I mean, there are many ways in which the Iranian leadership kind of departed from Shia orthodoxy, in particular, in having the religious leader be a, a secular leader. That That was... And, and was not approved by a lot of uh, senior Shia religious figures. So there's, you know, the, the, the very founding of the regime was based on this peculiar brand of Shia Islam um, that is was completely wrapped up in anti-Americanism is, is essential to its existence. I think, secondly, there is an element of traditional Iranian imperialism. This is an imperial power. It's kind of deep. Um, and I think they tap that. And I think the third piece of this is the, the regime's fear of its own people. 
and its fear of overthrow. And that's why I think, you know, some of the most shockingly naive um, views that I've heard on this, going back actually to the Bush administration, which as you say, we served, was with a very senior official. There was a point where we had some notion that we'd be able to have a consulate in Tehran and um, that this would be a wonderful thing because this would actually do the most to subvert the Iranian regime. To which my response was, well, if you can figure that out, you think the Ayatollahs can't figure that one out? And you really think that that's what they want? Um, and I, I, I also think, you know, Americans often don't like to believe that there are problems which are simply insoluble. Um, in, in, and in this case, the problem of kind of malevolence and, and hatred, that there isn't some way that you can't negotiate your way out of it, uh, talk through it, something like that. And what you're dealing with here is implacable malevolence. You know, you see a, a, a version of that too in, in those who say, well, maybe the Ukrainians should cut a deal with Russia. There isn't a deal to be cut. I mean, the, the, right. the malevolence and hostility is utterly implacable. And I think, that, you know, at the end of the day, it means there comes a point where you have to be equally implacable. Yeah, I agree. I um, I, I want to come back to Ukraine in a minute, but um, I end the question of whether a, there's a deal to be done and all of that, because that's plenty for us to chew on there as well. Uh, but before we kind of you know leave the Iran discussion, you, you mentioned that you know Ray Takei and I have written a number of pieces over the last few years. I mean, you're implicated in that as well. I mean, yes. the three of us together wrote a piece in, so. in Foreign Affairs. Uh, which advocated for pr pretty much precisely what you've been talking about, which is a comprehensive approach to the Iranian problem, not one that privileges one element in those days. Of course, it was the Iran uh, uh, nuclear deal that was being put as a kind of lodestar against which all Iran policy would be conducted. Um, and a lot of the objection that people have to what Ray and I have argued now twice in the pages of uh, or at least on the website of Foreign Affairs, uh, has been that you, you need to do everything you can to support the Iranian people. That regime change in Iran is not going to be imposed by U.S. military the way it was in Iraq, which is a completely different situation. This is something where the you know, bulk of the population clearly hates this regime and would like to be rid of it. And we've seen, you know, years and years of protests, most recently the protests over uh, the, the murder of Masa Amini uh, in Iran. And, and yet you just get the sense that despite democracy being at the center of the Biden administration's policy, that, that you know, nobody wants to do this because you don't want to upset the apple cart of trying to get back into a, quote, longer, stronger joint comprehensive plan of action, despite the fact that three years of negotiations with the Iranians should have completely disabused anybody of the notion that that was possible. So what is to be done as, you know, Lenin might've said, um, <laughs> you know, what, uh, what you, you know, you've said it at the outset that you didn't uh, think that, uh, that you understood, I should say, that the administration has a concern about escalation, wider war, et cetera, prudent use of military force. So in this circumstance, here's, you know, if I were being asked for my recommendation, here's what I would say. 
I would say you need to hit immediately the source of the, um, uh, you know, of the drone attack, as well as senior Iranian Quds Force advisors in Iraq, Syria, and Iran. We know where they are. And the Iranians have had a mothership, an intelligence vessel in the Gulf of Aden, uh, helping coordinate the Houthi attacks. I think that they are, they are in essence, accomplices to piracy, um, and the ship ought to be seized and or sunk, all as part of one operation. Uh, that has the virtue of not hitting Iran directly yet, although I think it sends a signal that if this keeps up, we're going to go after Iran directly. That would be my recommendation. Any, what's wrong with that? Uh, it doesn't go far enough. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree with all that. But I think there are um, the, there are several other elements. One of which is to begin now a large and sustained effort to undermine uh, the the rule of the regime, to weaken uh, the secret police, to weaken the forces of repression, and and you know the, the the I think the mistake would be to say okay this time it's going to be a really big retaliation, and then you don't do anything. You know, what's needed is something that's much more systematic than that and much longer term. And, and the other thing is, and, you know, this is a fault of the administration on the Russia-Ukraine front as well, and indeed on just about every front. You need to explain to the American people why this matters, why this is important, why this is the right thing to do. Um, you know, I guess one other piece of it is that I, I would say is, look, going forward, we have a zero tolerance policy for attacks by uh, Iranian supported forces of any kind on our on our forces. There have been something like 150 attacks since October on American bases and, and, and so on. Just until now, they haven't been able to kill anybody. And going forward, it should be zero, to- zero tolerance for that, zero tolerance for some of the stuff that they pull in uh, the Persian Gulf, and you know, enforce that, enforce those things pretty violently. And the reason to do that, I think, is not just, you know, in in a narrow sense to deter them. It's to also to make them look weak. I mean, that you know, so much of what the Iranians do is it's different kinds of mind games. The mind game that you want to play with them is to make them look weak, and that's going to make them more vulnerable at home. But but above all, I think we just need to convey to people that, you know, this time things have changed, the rules have changed. If bad things happen, you know, I, I guess I can invoke a line from The Godfather, um, you know, we're going to hold them responsible. Uh, you, you probably have the right quote. If an unfortunate accident should befall my son, right? Yeah. Now, the question is, do you think the administration will do this or anything remotely like that? Or is, as is so often the case, Eric, will our good advice be disregarded? Um, you know, look, I think that they have shown a consistent tendency to look for the middling half measure that is enough to, you know, sort of keep some critics at bay, but not enough to really have much effect. Yeah. Uh, that's been true, I think, in Ukraine. It's been true in Iran. It's true across the body of work that they've done in foreign policy by and large. 
Look, I, I, just three quick points, and then let's move on to Ukraine. Which, so one is, I should have stipulated the you know the uh, regime change portion of this policy. I was just talking about the immediate military piece. <laughs> Because obviously, since Ray and I have on multiple occasions advocated precisely what you called for, I you know, obviously think that ought to be part of the equation. Okay, we've established that you're not going soft. Yes, I'm not going soft. Um, the The second thing is that it it's worth noting, and you and I have some personal experience of this, the Iranians, when punched in the nose, as they have been on a couple of occasions, uh, like with the Soleimani um, strike, you know, um, in the aftermath of the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, have shown that they have a tendency, they really pull in their horns. They don't actually, you know, uh, react and escalate. They, they actually calibrate, not escalate. And so I think, you know, it's pretty safe to be on the strong side of a response here. And the biggest danger is being too weak in response, not being too strong. Um, that's a, a great um, <laughs> a, a great point on which to turn to, to Ukraine. You know, there's a lot going on. Obviously, our own domestic, you know, turmoil is taking, exacting a, a cost on the Ukrainians because of the slow down to a trickle of U.S. military aid, the uh, incredibly cynical uh, gamesmanship on the Hill that's going on, uh, that's allowing the, the border issue to, you know, sort of whipsaw around the question of Ukraine aid, despite the fact that it's pretty clear there's a bipartisan majority in favor of it. There's the fact that the Ukrainians are suffering from shell hunger on the front, that they're rationing, uh, you know, ammunition, and you're beginning to see some, you know, very small, incremental, but nonetheless real uh, Russian gains on the battlefield in places like Avdivka and, uh, and elsewhere, where you know you're seeing creeping Russian Russian gains. And I worry that the debate, you know, in in our country is being slanted in a way that is not helpful. You made the point that the president needs to articulate this. We've said, both you and I have been saying this for two years, that the president needs to explain what's at stake to the American people. Uh, obviously, our advice not being taken. But, you know, even in, uh, you know, without the president's intervention, you know, the Bulwark published an article this week uh, by a number of former U.S. ambassadors and officials dealing with Ukraine that was a response to something that appeared in foreign affairs that basically said, well, you, you know, Ukraine is being depicted as this heroic, plucky little country, but really it's hopelessly corrupt and really hasn't made much progress since it left the Soviet Union and advancing towards democracy, which of course is a Kremlin talking point and has been picked up by opponents of aid on the Hill as a, you know, good heart, you know, excuse. I mean, the author of the article was our former colleague in government, Tom, Tom Graham, my former colleague in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Um, but what's troubling about that is the fact that foreign affairs refused to publish the rejoinder, you know, only coming from four or five people who have, you know, served as U.S. ambassadors in, in Kiev and have kept up over the years, have some sense of what kind of progress has or hasn't been made. And it's, it's a pattern because uh, one of the co-authors, David Kramer, and I have written a couple of pieces responding to other things in foreign affairs 
uh, either advocating for negotiations with Russia, which, as you point out, there's no negotiation to be had because Russia is interested in capitulation, not negotiation, um, as well as other you know, articles that have appeared in foreign affairs that have been either, I would say, uh, hostile to Ukraine or sympathetic to kind of, uh, or at least expressing understanding of you know, certain positions that Russia has taken. What's going on here in your mind, in your view? Well, uh, first thing I would say is that uh, probably wouldn't be a bad thing if uh, interested listeners to Shield of the Republic let the editors of Foreign Affairs uh, know that they would like to see a, a range of opinions on this question. Uh, I think the larger issue is uh, that, unfortunately, sort of the and, and and this is part of a bigger problem. You know, the, the weight of so-called expert opinion on um, uh, Russia-Ukraine has been dominated by Russianists who possibly subconsciously sort of absorbed what is the standard Russian line on Ukraine, that, look, these are, these are sort of a backward, corrupt, inferior version of Russians. It's not really a state. You know, it's just some sort of kleptocracy. Um, and what do you expect? And, you know, the people on the other side are a bunch of kind of wild-eyed uh, democracy promotion types, uh, but let's be mature and serious. And it's, you know, the same crew who, let us never forget, said that Ukraine would be overrun within a week or two because, it, because of exactly the same thing. They basically bought off on a, even when they, don't particularly like Russia or oppose it in some sense. They bought off on a Russian set of assumptions about Russia's military capacity, about Ukraine's military capacity, but above all about the nature of the Ukrainian people and the nature of the Ukrainian state. And, um, you know, in this case, it's simply, there's a large measure of ignorance. I think a lot of these people, you know, are not particularly sensitive to all the changes that have happened to Ukraine, particularly since 2014, which are really quite remarkable. Um, but but there's that. A and of course, as you know, in policy debates, once people have planted a flag somewhere, they're very reluctant to take it down and say, you know what, I, that was a mistaken judgment about what Ukraine is like. Um, and, you know, um, I think that, that, that explains... I think that explains the views of people like Tom Graham. It doesn't explain the views of uh, the editors of Foreign Affairs, who I think owe you and some of the others an explanation. And maybe uh, Field of the Republic can help nudge them to that. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the fact that uh, David and I and, and now the um, uh, group of ambassadors have published in the Bulwark is a tribute to the Bulwark, actually, which has... Uh, published some terrific stuff, and our colleague at the Bulwark, Kathy Young, has written some very good stuff uh, about what's going on in Ukraine as, as well. It, the Russocentrism is a, a phenomenon that you and, and I have remarked on. Uh, we had John Herbst, one of the former ambassadors who was a signatory on that article uh, about a year ago, talking about this. Um, it's, it's hard to get around because, you know, if you're interested in this part of the world, you learn Russian you know, first and then, you know, maybe you learn Ukrainian if you bother at all. 
Uh, so, you know, there's some natural tendencies here, although you would think people might, being aware of those tendencies, kind of lean against them a bit to balance their own views. But I mean, it's also this kind of nonsense about, you know, there should be a negotiation. Um, you know, the Ukrainians need to negotiate. I mean, there is zero, and I mean zero evidence. Uh, you know, people will point to two, you know, sources close to the Kremlin, quote unquote, uh, told a Bloomberg reporter that Putin is ready to negotiate. And people accept this without, you know, also noting that, for instance, Putin is actually in a, uh, you know, election campaign right now for uh, president of Russia. If voting will be in March. Of course, he's going to win. There's not really any opposition, although it's interesting the you know the candidate Nadezhdin, who whose uh, name is uh, originates in the word Nadezhda or hope in Russian, by the way, um, who, who's a former uh, colleague of Boris Nemtsov's, is not very charismatic. He's clearly been an approved Kremlin you know alternate, so he's going to uh, you know not really rock the boat but his candidacy is meeting with enormous enthusiasm long lines of people trying to sign up to get him on the ballot which tells you that notwithstanding all the polls and all the discussion about how popular and Putin is and the war is it, Russians are getting tired of this and you know would like to see an end to it and Putin probably thinks he needs to conciliate that at least, to some level, which is why we get these feelers and these stories. But whenever it's put to the test or wherever he actually says what it is he is willing to negotiate, it's, as I said earlier, it's capitulation, not negotiation. Yeah, I, th I think um, Sergei Narishkin, the, um, uh, the head of the, their security council recently, was very explicit in saying, you know, the objective of the war is to eliminate Ukrainian statehood and to change its its government i i think there's a you know there's a common former president dmitry medvedev who's the deputy on the national security council also said that that's right i mean this is like it's uh you know i i quote in the piece uh, bernard lewis's uh famous line that you know in some parts of the world don't pay attention to what people say in public pay attention to what they say in private in the middle east pay attention to what they say in public i think something like that applies to russia by the way it applies to china as well I think there's a there's a you know a, I think a broader point um, in in all these in the case of Iran in the case of Russia in the case of China. This is not like negotiating with Germany or with Canada or Japan or Indonesia for that matter. You know, on these issues, they basically have no intention whatsoever of long term compromise. And we just have trouble wrapping our heads around that. I, I, you know, I recently read a very interesting essay in Quillette. I don't know if you, if you look at it. It's a very interesting um, publication coming out of Australia. It's, I think, entirely virtual. But it was about Hong Kong. And, you know, what's life like for the people who were democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Now, remember, at one point, they got like 2 million people out in the streets. Okay, a couple of hundred thousand have, have successfully fled, but the remainder are still there. And it, it's a terrible picture of, you know, people being ground down and no compromise being possible. And, and that's, 
you know, that was the story with Hong Kong. That would be the story of Taiwan if China ever took it over. It's the story of Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. It's the story of Iran vis-a-vis -vis us, the Israelis, um, and others. And I, I just think we need to accept that's the nature of the world we're in. And um, it means a kind of a grim determination, which I just don't see yet. C continuing on Ukraine, I wanted to, um, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit more about some of the other developments. I think one glimmer of light is, I do think this is forcing, and, and alas, the prospect of a Trump administration is forcing the Europeans to, to take the initial steps to improve their own defense industrial capability and to prepare for it. You've had now a number of speeches, including by the German defense minister and others, sort of warning of the possibility of serious conflict with Germany. You do see some measures being taken in terms of munitions uh, production. That and I, I don't think you really see a slackening of support for Ukraine there, although there are some worrying signs with things like the um, AFD in, um, in, in Germany. I think, secondly, it is striking how the Ukrainians have been able to maintain a certain degree of freedom of the seas and also to strike deep into Russia. Um, I wish we were willing to support them in doing that. I mean, I think there's just... A, you know, a, a disgusting absurdity of the idea that we think it's okay for Russians to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure, but it's not okay for uh, for the Ukrainians to strike back at, at Russian infrastructure. So I think there are some signs. Now, the, the one last thing I was going to drop is there have been rumors flying around, and at the moment they're just rumors, that there may be a shakeup in the Ukrainian high command. Um, We'll see. We'll see if that if that were to actually happen, and you know who knows what significance that that might have. I guess the last thing I'll just say on this is, you know, I'm still hoping against hope that there'll be some kind of deal on support for Ukraine. Um, you know, I've got a feeling that Mitch McConnell would would like it. I mean, his support for Ukraine is quite sincere. I mean, the problem is that House Republicans just seem to be kind of lunatic. Or rather, the that. decisive minority there is lunatic. Not, not the majority, but a, a very strong-willed minority. Yeah, who seem to have control over the speaker. Um, look, yeah, I, so where to start? Um, I do worry about the Zelensky tensions. I mean, uh, we have talked about that in the past. I think we talked about that with Yaro uh, Trofimov Um a couple of weeks ago when he was on the show uh, talking about his terrific book. Uh, there's been tension there, I think, since the beginning. Um, there's just been a major corruption case, uh, arrests in a corruption case and retrieval of money that was apparently going to be pocketed by people involved in some contracting by the Ukrainian defense ministry. Uh, so certainly there's potentially, you know, pretexts there for, you know, doing things. He's already made a change, of course, in defense minister uh, earlier. Um, I, my only worry about this is that it, you know, the fraying of domestic unity is, you know, potentially problematic, I think, for Ukraine. Um, 
But putting aside the rights and wrongs of, you know, Zelensky versus Zeluzhny, who's got a better strategy, whatever, I think um, one of the strengths of the Ukrainians has been their unity. It undermined one of the key Russian assumptions, which was that there was no unity in Ukrainian society. So I, I do, you know, worry about that. And although you're right that the Europeans are stepping up and have recognized uh, that they have been, you know, living in for too long in the, you know, land of, uh, you know, what our <laughs> what our friend Bob Kagan calls, you know, the lands of Mars and Venus. Um, the the reality is, though, they have a long way to go uh, because their defense industrial base is in worse shape than ours. Um, and I worry that about the sustainability of this in European politics. And when you put some of the things together, if the United States were to drop off providing aid and God forbid Donald Trump becomes you know president, um, if the Ukrainians are divide a house divided rather than united and fighting Russia, if the Russians are beginning to make gains on the battlefield, I worry that the political support in in Europe will start to evaporate. It'll be come to be seen as this is too hard a problem for us to handle on our own without the Americans and, you know, with the Russians making gains. And, and I think it starts to undermine what you're seeing now, what you rightly have pointed to, which is this sense that they've got to get their house in order and be prepared to, you know, do some defense work on their own without necessarily the U.S. being there. I, I just worry about the long term. You know, I, I take those points. I think I'd qualify both of those a little bit, though. You know, it seems to me on the whole, Ukrainian society remains united. It's very tired. But, you know, the intra-elite disagreements, and it's hard to tell whether it's personality-driven or it's or it's substantive, and it may well be substantive, um, is is dominant. Uh, so I think there's that. But, I, you know, on the whole, the set, you have, I mean, you, the Ukrainians face some very large challenges to include developing an equitable system of mobilization uh, for their population. And, and that that's beginning to be an issue. You have, you've had the same guys on the front lines for a very long time and they need to be rotated out. On the, on the European side, you're right on the one hand. On the other hand, one thing we can be quite sure of is the Poles, the Baltic states, the Czechs, the Finns, the Norwegians, Swedes will really be staunch. Now, will that, and the Brits, I think. Um, now, will that be enough to bring everybody else along with them? I don't know. But even, actually, even those, just those countries that I've itemized, when you put them all together, that's actually a pretty, you know, it's economically reasonably substantial. Um, and they have been doing the things that you need to, to mobilize. It's not enough. And it, don't, don't, you know, don't mistake me on that. But, but I think the, you know, that that's where the center of gravity of political energy on this is going to be coming from. I think that's fair. And, uh, we've just had the first round of a Finnish presidential election, which I follow with some interest. Um, and, you know, both of the two final candidates, you know, frankly, I think it was Barry Goldwater who said there's not a dime's worth of difference. Or no, I guess that was George Wallace who said there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats in 1968. I, I think actually 
you know, there's not really a dime's worth of difference between Pekka Havisto and, and Alexander Stubb, the two candidates in Finland. It's really more personality than it is, you know, uh, substantive. The one thing that I, I saw, I don't know if, if you picked it up or if you think this is so, but Minna Alander, who's a, a, an analyst who I, I follow, um, said something to the yes. effect that essentially the, the Finns have kind of begun transition to kind of war economy light by, uh, I guess, yes. they have rules which allow them to essentially mobilize industry for defense purposes, and they've begun doing that. I don't know if that's... Yeah, but, you know, that's a significant yeah. enough thing, I would think. Yeah, she's 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 very sharp. She's a very good uh, analyst at uh, uh, at FIA, the Finnish Institute for International Affairs. We'll see what what happens there. I, you know, we ought to move on to one other subject because we need to touch a little bit on what's going on with Israel and Gaza as well. And of course, the uh, International Court of Justice uh, rendered uh, not a verdict but a, a decision. Uh, in connection with the case on genocide that has been brought there against Israel by South Africa, in which uh, Israel was enjoined essentially to do things that I believe they're already doing, which is to take steps to try and protect the population from collateral damage in in this uh, conflict, um, which has already seen, you know, the Israelis making some pretty considerable efforts here uh, against a foe who uh, violates all the laws of armed conflict by, you know, operating in schools, hospitals, uh, you know, taking hostages and using um, civilian population as human shields to protect it from uh, from combat. So what's your thought on all that? Well, I, I so my first thought is actually kind of a visceral anger and disgust at, at the um, at invoke at the invocation of genocide against the state which let us not forget has a very large population still of people who survived the Holocaust that was genocide that was really an attempt to exterminate an entire people whatever is going on in Gaza no matter how terrible you think it is, this is not a war of extermination. This is not death camps. This is not gas chambers. This is not the machine gunning of thousands of people and dumping their bodies in uh, uh, in a trench. It, it, and it's it's obscene that this is coming up, um, and it it reflects, you know, not only an extraordinary discredit upon South Africa, which I think should be called upon at some point to to pay a penalty for this. And I, I hope will, um, you know, I, I'm a great believer in keeping book. Uh, and I think this is one case where the United States among other countries should keep book, but it raises, uh, I haven't gotten that off my chest. Um, it raises for me the question of the, the international criminal, uh, court, the international court of justice, in general, and it's so. Let's move to the uh, kind of airier uplands of political philosophy, if we may. I guess the problem that I've always had is it seems to me justice is something that can be dispensed by states because there's a common sovereign. But the most fundamental fact of international politics is there is no common sovereign. You know, I'm not the first one to point this out. Thomas Hobbes pointed this out, and the Greeks were well aware of it before him. 
and and I I think you know the result is that although yes, there's a body of customary international law, and you know it, you, people can work through that. You can have tribunals and arbitration and all that. At the end of the day, a a court of this kind is bound to be political, and political in a way that would be un, utterly unacceptable in a domestic context, and that's why I don't like it. What about you? Yes, I you know I agree. Actually, I mean, actually, the the fact that there is no you know, agreed sovereign in international life is really the fundamental premise of an entire you know school of thought in international relations, you know, commonly referred to as realism. Right. So uh, you know, uh, I, I like you. I mean, I think it's sort of risible to have South Africa of all places, uh, you know, raising this. Um, but I think also it does tell you a little bit about the broader international community and how they see this war. And also, um, which I think is a problem for Israel and for the United States. Uh, and it also tells you a lot about, unfortunately, you know, international institutions and more broadly and kind of the failure of our kind of hopes for them that you know, arose in the Second World War. I mean, right, our First World War and Second World War. Right? It was sort of, you know, Wilson's hope that the League of Nations would somehow overcome the, you know, absence of a, a common sovereign and um, and put an end to, you know, warring between alliances and blocks. And, and then, you know, after World War II, the United Nations, it's actually quite interesting to see how in the 1950s, how much emphasis Dwight Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles put on the United Nations and its importance um, in in international affairs. And I think we've arrived at a point where so many of these institutions now have been so corrupted by, you know, frankly, these outlandishly high salaries for international civil servants and the, um, I think, loss of the plot, frankly, on, you know, what, what it is they're supposed to be doing. I mean, you know, the other, of course, case in point is the revelation by Israel which I don't think comes as a shock to too many people who've been following things over the years, that UNRWA, the United Nations Refugee um, Welfare, is a welfare or works agency, which was established in 1948 to to take care of the refugee population uh, in, in Gaza, has become a kind of perpetual self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, it exists to perpetuate itself. Uh, and it's also been complicit in terrorism. I, I was going to say, I mean, they, the Israelis produced what looks like pretty hard evidence that at least a dozen uh, of UNRWA's employees were actually participated in the October 7th attacks, uh, but that uh, a substantial percentage in a variety of ways were associated with it, even if they weren't directly um, participating. As you say, that's no surprise to anybody who's followed it. But I think there's a larger point here, which is what UNRWA has done in its more than half century of existence, it's astounding, is, you know, it's kind of kept the Palestinians in this kind of welfare-dependent state 
and and you know obstructed what would have been the desirable thing, which would have been, uh, you know, to help people find their feet and then develop their own economic lives, be integrated with the places where they were living, and you know the way refugees from previous wars have been, and you know whether it's you know. Um, uh, uh, Pied Noir going to France or Iraqi Jews going to uh, the newly created state of Israel. Um, and instead what, what, what it does is, I mean, it, it's like the most pernicious uh, version of something that was, you know, a, a, a critique of the welfare state in the 60s and 70s that you create cultures of dependency, which are just terrible for everybody and do breed corruption. And, and there's a, a great deal of corruption there. Now, what's interesting here is that a number of countries, the United States, Canada, um, uh, and, and there are more, have now suspended payments to UNRWA. Now, is that a suspension? Italy, I think. Is, is that a pause? Will people go back to it? Is there a substitute for it? What is that substitute? Those are all up there. But I think it does shine a light on something that everybody's been complicit in, uh, which is, you know, keeping keeping the Palestinians, you know, who are now like third generation or more from 1948 in the state of dependence, you know, feeding the myth that they will get to go back, which they will not. They absolutely will not. Um, and so therefore, you know, creating these breeding grounds for hatred and violence and so on. And it's, it's tragic. Um, and it's, you know, the people who perpetuate these institutions are not doing the Palestinians any favors. That said, you know, I have no idea what the solution is with the Palestinian population of Gaza and what the kind of administrative and political arrangements need to be. They need to be something. I just want to make, um, if I might, uh, since we're on this topic, one minor point. There's a, a very good thread by John Spencer. Uh, I think he's at the Modern Warfare Institute at uh, West Point, who's an expert in urban warfare about about the uh, Palestinian uh, civilian casualty figures, which everybody takes. He says, let's set aside the fact that these are generated by Hamas. So first, he, you know, he says, I've been studying urban warfare for many years. I have never heard of anybody who's been able to give you accurate civilian casualty uh, uh, figures down to the single digit on the same day they happen. Secondly, you know, the Palestinians don't seem to count in those numbers, numbers of Hamas combatants who've been killed. We know that at least a thousand were killed by the Israelis on October 7th, in uh, the fighting around the, the attack, uh, the Israelis say that there's something like 9,000 who've been killed. Doesn't talk about friendly fire, doesn't talk about Palestinian civilians who've been killed by Hamas, which has happened intentionally as people uh, tried to flee some of their areas. And it, it's, um, you know, again, it's just, it's very depressing the way people sort of accept these numbers without saying, hang on a second, where did they? Where do they come from? What I would like to do for the wrap up is go talk about the book I've been reading because it's actually relevant to this question of the UN. I'm going to let you go there in a second. I just wanted to say that the the Washington Institute uh, has also done a paper on the 
Hamas's uh, manipulation over history of, uh, you know, casualty figures in the fight with uh, with Israel. This is not new. This has been going on can, yeah. you know, through all the earlier rounds of this. Uh, so that's not new. And also John Spencer, who is terrific on uh, urban warfare, he's also a very, uh, got a lot of expertise in subterranean warfare. And he uh, had a very good post uh, at the Modern War Institute not long ago about the tunnels that uh, Hamas has done, which are really quite extraordinary. I mean, it turns out to be about, what, 450 miles of tunnels, uh, way way bigger than the Israelis had anticipated. This is in an area that's like 25 miles long and about, was it about 20 miles across? I mean, it's, it's uh, no, not even. I mean, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, I think it was 6,000 6, pounds of, uh, 6,000 tons, excuse me, of concrete were poured in and, and 1,700 tons of rebar went into this. Uh, it's it's really uh, quite astounding. And just think about if, if all that expense and all that effort and all that ingenuity had gone towards developing decent water and sewer systems and educational systems, which taught people something other than hate, and you know were conducive to developing an economy that could thrive and feed the people of of Gaza and offer them a somewhat better future. I mean, that's the thing that's poisonous about it. And it is astounding to me that, and I agree with you, you know, with what you say about sort of the the attitudes towards Israel. That I mean, almost immediately, criticism of Hamas not only for the October the 7th massacre and all with all of its horrors, but for this kind of stuff, it just vanished. It's just not, people aren't going right. to talk about it. It's, it's all going to be talking about uh, the Israelis. It's preposterous. So um, you're going to have a, a wonderful trip to, to Lisbon. And I know you want to talk uh, about uh, Antonio Salazar, the, uh, the dictator of Portugal, so uh, tell us all about what you've learned, because, you know, I really want to get the lessons ahead of time before our own election uh, about soft authoritarianism. <laughs> well, he, by the way, it's only on Shield of the Republic that the uplifting note on which you end a session is talking about Portuguese dictators. Um, so the, the book is Tom Gallagher's uh, Salazar, The Dictator Who Refused to Die. Um, Salazar was a brilliant uh, professor uh, in economics, but also in law at the University of Coimbra, which is a very ancient university and the oldest in Portugal, who entered the government in the late 20s. Then in 1932, he became prime minister and effectively dictator and served there until 1968. So a very, very long tenure of uh, about 34 years. Now, uh, by the way, he would have despised uh, Donald Trump. He was a brilliant man, a uh, extremely well-read, uh, steeped in all the classics. He was a he was profoundly conservative to the point of being reactionary, but he was also, you know, a frugal man. He when he died, basically, he didn't really leave any kind of fortune behind at all. Uh, fantastic work ethic. Um, and, you know, even though when that regime was overthrown about six years after his death, um, a lot 
of effort went into criticizing them. And a lot of the criticisms were, were justified. I mean, they had a secret police that was could be quite nasty. And in some ways he did hold the country back. But still they had a, there was a television series not that long ago on great Portuguese. And they had the, you know, the people watching it uh, write in, okay, who's the greatest Portuguese of them all? Majority for Salazar. I mean, his accomplishment was to stabilize not only the economy, but the government after a prolonged period of internal turmoil, which had been uh, because you had, you had monarchists, you had Republicans, you know, uh, you had uh, the church, you had um, people opposed to the church. Uh, the country had been badly disrupted by the First World War in a number of ways. He stabilizes all that and, you know, produced a regime that was authoritarian, uh, where the, there was there was some freedom of the press, but it was controlled. But it was not a fascist regime, and he he very deliberately rejected that. He was not. This was not like Franco Spain. It certainly was not like Hitler's Germany, not in the slightest, or Mussolini's Italy. Uh, he despised all that. He thought all that stuff was you know that's bad because he he recognized the true revolutionary nature. I think of fascist move, movements. Now he he also while he did in some ways good for the country. He also did not believe in, uh, you know, extensive education. Uh, so Portugal was sort of backward as that result. He was ferociously committed to maintaining the Portuguese empire um, in uh, Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde. Um, but he was an impressive figure. And he what's one of the things I find I found most interesting about the book and Gallagher, I think, is a very good biographer because he's, I mean, doesn't, uh, he's quite dispassionate, I think, about Salazar. He's, he admires some things and clearly does not admire others. But what he captures is the essence of Salazar's critique of modernity and makes it clear that it's one which actually has some purchase now. And one of those things is he thought that, you know, the kind of, um, you know, internationalist movements of the post-World War II period, including the, uh, the what was then the EEC, the predecessor of the European Union, the United Nations, this is all folly, uh, that the things that are real are nation states, and that the idea that you can remake humanity is a folly and a delusion. You know, his, his real enemy was in many ways the French Revolution, which doesn't, isn't quite as crazy as it sounds. So it, it's a, a, a wonder, it was absolutely fascinating, partly for what it taught you about Portugal, but as a case study of what rule by a genuinely conservative shading into reactionary figure is like. Not our caricature of that, but the reality. So, and again, let me just stipulate, some parts of it are really quite ugly. So I and I would never want to live under that kind of regime. But it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, in an era where Trumpism is being normalized by people like Patrick Deneen and others who have that kind of, you know, more traditionalist conservative critique of, of liberalism, uh, it's probably worth going back uh, and, and looking at what, you know, what that really looks like. Right. It doesn't look anything like Trump. You know, it, it's, it's, right. 
it is so much the anti. I mean, this is, you know, he had profound doubts about the United States. He thought we were naive and um, dangerous. And although he's a founding member of NATO, yeah, but well, he, he, I mean, it was the communists who really scared him. Um, so right. he's profoundly anti-communist. He drove very hard bargains with us over the use of the Azores. By the way, during World War II, you know, he. I mean, from the Portuguese point of view, he maintained Portuguese neutrality, which ended up being a tilt to the Allies and keeping them out of the war. And, you know, that was not a given. There was a point where either the Spanish or the Germans without Spanish approval, they thought would, you know, would want to take Portugal. And you can understand why. Well, they both stayed out of the war, and Lisbon became, under Salazar, a his neutrality became a, a city teeming with espionage activity of all sorts by you know by by all by all sides. Well, that sounds like an appropriately cheery note on which to end this episode of, of Shield of the Republic. I I hope you have a, a a great time in Portugal. I know we did, so I'm sure you will as well. Yeah, we're looking forward to. Uh... Drinking port and eating pastiche de nata. There you go. 